It is great to have you all with us today at River Oaks, and um, we are continuing today on our study of the parables of Jesus. This is our fifth Sunday in the parables of Jesus out of 11 that we'll look at in our series, so we're almost at the halfway point. And I'd like to do something today that we don't do very often, but from time to time, when we've got a little extra uh, time at the end of a message, um, we'll open it up to ask questions about uh, what we're studying. And you're going to see a, a number on the screen to which you can text a question. If you, if you have a question about the parable we're looking at today or any of the four parables, passages, parable passages we looked at over the first four weeks. And uh, just to refresh our minds a bit, the first week we looked at the parable of the sower, the sower sowing the word. The second week, the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds with this idea of separation when Jesus returns. The third week, we talked about three very short parables, the treasure, the pearl, and the net. And again, this idea of separation when Jesus comes, final judgment. Last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant, a long parable with a very, very relevant theme of forgiveness and the need to forgive those who wrong us. Today we talk about the parable of the tenant. So if you, if you have a question you'd just like to submit in the extra time that we'll have this morning about any one of these passages we've studied over the last five weeks, feel free to, to uh, send that in. Now, today's parable is most commonly known as the parable of the tenants. And as is the case with all of Scripture, I think it's particularly helpful to understand this parable in its setting, its context, the setting in which we find it in Scripture. First of all, it's a bit of background. Jesus told the parable of the tenants during the last week of his earthly life. He had entered into Jerusalem, but just prior to entering Jerusalem, we read these words in Matthew chapter 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus had very specifically predicted his death even the form of death he would face, and his resurrection. Now in Matthew chapter 21, they have drawn near to Jerusalem, and we find what is sometimes called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, the Sunday prior to Jesus' crucifixion, and then resurrection on Easter Sunday. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Hosanna means Lord save or Lord save us. People were throwing their cloaks before Jesus and putting palm branches on the road before him. And that's why we often call our uh, celebration of this day prior to Easter Palm Sunday. So Jesus has uh, entered into Jerusalem. And what does he do when he goes into Jerusalem? Well, next we find the cleansing of the temple. Jesus goes into the temple and drives out the people uh, buying and selling, making a marketplace of the temple. And he says to them something very significant. 
you, you see it in the middle of the passage on the screen. It is written, quote, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, the reason I stress this is because throughout his ministry, Jesus appealed to Old Testament scripture as his authority. Jesus considered the Old Testament scripture authoritative truth. Jesus lived his life, his ministry, in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I believe in Jesus. I think he was good. I, I like his teachings about love and all that, but I don't care for the Old Testament. I don't think the Old Testament is the same. In fact, I don't even think the God in the Old Testament is the same as the God in the New. But Jesus treated the Old Testament as his authoritative source for truth, authoritative scripture. It is critically important that we understand the Bible, Old and New Testament, as a unified whole. Jesus treated Old Testament scripture as the word of God, inspired by God, truth, authoritative truth. So when he says, it is written, or have you not read, he is appealing to scripture. So people then come to him in the temple and he heals them. Children are crying out again, Hosanna to the son of David. Next, Jesus will teach the parable of the two sons. And in the parable of the two sons, Jesus is specifically talking to religious leaders at this point, chief priests and elders. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he said, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. You know, the one that said he wasn't going to go, but he, he did it. He did go. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you. Now imagine how offensive this would have been to the clergy of the day, the religious of the religious, the chief priests, the scribes, the one to whom he directs his parable. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So he's really... Uh, put them on edge to say the least. And it should, should be stressed when, when Jesus talked about a vineyard, as he does in our parable today, the Jewish leaders would have understood Jesus' teaching about the vineyard. The passage you see on the screen from Isaiah chapter 5 was a very well-known passage to Jewish leaders because it was often read and used in synagogue worship. And the prophet Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. Now, Isaiah wrote 700, 750 years before the time of Christ. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Boy, it sounds like our parable about this master, this owner that uh, planted a vineyard. And he built a watchtower and a, and a wine press in it. But this is Old Testament from hundreds of years before. Isaiah the prophet continued, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? In other words, I didn't get any good fruit out of it. And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. 
I'll remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll also command the clouds that they rain no more. In other words, God's talking about his people of Israel in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is predict, predicting judgment will come because of their disobedience to God. And now he makes it clear. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah is pleasant planting. And he that is God looked for just, justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Jesus is now taking this image. They understood what a vineyard was. They understood what a watchtower was, where you watched out for thieves stealing from your vineyard. They understood what a wine vat and a wine press was in a vineyard. And they could make the connection to Jesus' parable now. God was the owner, the master of the vineyard. The vineyard was a reference to God's people, the people of Israel. The tenants... The tenants, you know, the ones that beat up the servants and, and killed the son of the, the owner, the tenants were the religious leaders of the people of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. What about the servants the master sent? Over the years, God had sent many of his servants, the prophets, to the Israelites. They had mistreated many of them. Many of them had been put to death. Tradition says that Isaiah, who wrote the passage we just read, was placed into a hollow log and sawn in two. The prophet suffered terribly. And then the parable continues. Finally, the, the owner of the vineyard sends his son. Well, they know now Jesus is speaking of himself. He's the son of God. And he's the one who's going to be rejected. And indeed, those who reject him would face a severe judgment. So, with that background, what's the parable teaching us? How do we understand this parable of the tenants? Well, first of all, the parable's teaching us, again, that Jesus, the Son of God, would be rejected and put to death. And again, this is the final week of his life. He's giving these parables. He's making it clear to those who understood that he'd be rejected and put to death. And Matthew 21, verse 38 says, again in his parable, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And as we saw just a few minutes ago, Jesus, before getting to Jerusalem, speaking to his disciples, had said that it would be the chief priests and scribes that would condemn him, they would deliver him to the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers. He would be mocked. He would be flogged. He would be crucified. Then he would be raised. Just as in the parable, the owner sends his son, and they kill the son. And they say, this is the son. Let's, let's kill him, and we'll just keep this whole vineyard for ourselves. But Jesus, in being killed and being rejected, would again, as he did throughout his ministry, fulfill old Testament scripture. And so Jesus says to these religious leaders who knew the scripture well, they knew the Old Testament well, have you never read in the scriptures, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. What scripture is he talking about? 
He's talking about Psalm 118. You'll see it on the screen. Here's a section from the 118th Psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, when he talked about being the good shepherd, would say, I'm the gate. I'm the doorway. He's the door into the sheepfold. It's through Jesus that people would be made righteous. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has been the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When builders are building things with stone, this is the image. They're going through stones, and they say, well, this is a good stone. This is a bad stone. We can't use this one. They reject it. But Jesus says the builders, who would be these religious leaders, would reject one who would be the very cornerstone the very cornerstone of something new that God was building. This something new of which Jesus would be the cornerstone, this something new God was building was the church. The Apostle Peter would write about it this way in the words that you'll see on the screen from 1 Peter chapter 2. Writing after the death and resurrection of Jesus in the beginning of the New Testament church, <coughs> Jesus writes, as you come to him, come to Jesus, that is, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In other words, God has done, God is doing something new Jesus, the cornerstone, and you, through your faith in him, like a living stone, are being built into this structure, this edifice, this building. And in this building, you, you're part of a holy priesthood. You now offer spiritual sacrifices to God acceptable through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, quote, and again, Psalm 118, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those is, is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Now this is the quote from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus would fulfill Old Testament scripture. He would be rejected. And there's another point in the parable of, of the tenants that, that is worth noting. Those who receive Jesus enter the kingdom of God and they produce fruit. Notice that Jesus said at the end of this parable, Matthew 21, Therefore I tell you, speaking to these religious leaders, scribes, chief priests, Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Remember the kingdom of God, as we have said, is the rule and reign of God. When a person comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ, they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born by water and the Spirit. This being born again by the Holy Spirit is entrance into the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, it is incumbent upon us, those who are part of the kingdom of God, to produce fruit. God looks for fruit 
in his vineyard. What is fruit? Well, one form of fruit is the work the Holy Spirit does in those who have indeed embraced Jesus and, rece embraced Jesus and received the Spirit of God within them. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Long-suffering is patience. Temperance is self-control. These fruit, they, they come when we're connected to God. He uses this image of a vineyard for his family. And Jesus carries this image forth in, in the Gospel of John when he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you're the branches. In other words, the way to become part of the vineyard of the Lord is through Christ. Just like the way to be part of the building that God's now building, the way to be a living stone is through Christ. We are the body of Christ. And then finally, the parable teaches us this. Those who reject Jesus do not enter God's kingdom and incur judgment. We've seen this in the parables we've looked at so far. This recurring theme of judgment and separation at the final judgment. Whether it's the separation of the weeds from the wheat or the bad fish from the, the, the good fish in the parable of the net. And now, those who reject the cornerstone from those who, by faith, receive the cornerstone Jesus. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Again, this theme of separation. So what is the call then? What is the call in this parable of the tenants? Well, first of all, I think it's to do what the scribes and Pharisees did not do. And that is to recognize who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the Messiah that was to come. He is the cornerstone. He's the vine. He's the good shepherd. Recognize who He is and receive Him as Savior and Lord and enter the kingdom of God. That's the way we, we enter the kingdom of God. Through faith in Jesus, embracing His salvation, embracing His Lordship, entering the kingdom of God. <coughs> And then finally, living in fellowship with him and bearing fruit. You know, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If we abide in him and he in us, that's the way to bear fruit. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. So as we increasingly grow in our fellowship with him and draw our strength, our power from his spirit, we will. We will bear fruit. Now, Brad, if you'll pop that number up again, if anyone should have, we'd be, I told you we'd have time left. We've got 20 minutes left this morning, and this is a little bit of a shorter one today. Um, if there are any questions that you would like to ask about this or one of the parables, this is one of those days we'll take a little time and try, and I emphasize try to respond. I, I always hold on to the option to say I, I don't know, so, or to point you where you might 
find some resources. What if someone doesn't apologize and ask for forgiveness? Do we still need to forgive them? I thought that parable from last week might generate more questions because um, in the first service, I think the first question that came up had to do with that parable as well. That's a really important question. Um, and I think I'm, I'm going to answer it, give a short answer and try to explain it first. The short answer for me is yes. I think we do still need to forgive them. But the reason there's question about it, if we look at Matthew chapter 18, which the, the parable that Andrew preached on last week came from, Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, just prior to the parable, this is what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's a person who's committed an offense against you, and that person's not repentant. And you're going then to bring others into church to address the issue. The first thing to be said is this. This is not a minor offense. This is not you're playing golf with your friend and your friend moves his golf ball. And that's not something you take to the elders of the church and then you put out of the church over that. I mean, we, we all face smaller things like this. What Jesus is talking about is what's sometimes referred to as church discipline. The process for dealing with someone who commits a significant offense within the body of Christ and it must be addressed. This is like the person who calls one of our elders or pastors and says, my spouse is committing adultery and um, I need help. Um, uh, he or she is denying it. I need help. What can the church do? And a couple of elders or pastors go to this person and try to bring this person to uh, truthfulness and repentance with a goal of reconciliation. But if the person says, you're judging me, uh, I don't want to hear any more from you. Well, that's the type of, of situation where ultimately you have to recognize that a person is doing something seriously wrong and is, is removed from membership in the church. The same thing if somebody starts teaching a really wrong doctrine in the church. So in a case like that, there, there must be repentance for reconciliation to really occur. But often in life, people hurt us. And they don't apologize. And they don't even admit they've hurt us. They don't recognize they've done anything wrong, perhaps. Maybe you've, well, I'm sure you've had that happen to you. I've had it happen to me plenty. People hurt us. People wrong us. If we don't forgive them, we're going to carry around in our own soul that unforgiveness. Now, Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. In Mark chapter 11, he said, When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. When he taught the Lord's Prayer, he was talking about, I think, a daily model for prayer. Give us this day our daily 
bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Somebody might cut you off in traffic on the way home today and cause you to run off the road. You don't know who they are. You'll never see them again. They're not going to apologize. Are you going to hold hatred in your heart? Are you going to do what Jesus said? Say, Father, teach that person how to drive. If they need a ticket, let them get a ticket. But I'm not going to hold bitter resentment in my heart. Forgive them, Lord. Bless those who, uh, bless those who curse you. A Christian is called to live this way, and that's really the teaching of the parable in Matthew chapter 18. We've been forgiven an immense debt, a debt we could never repay. How dare we hold on to something small against someone else? The book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 says, Let no root of bitterness springing up trouble you. If you hold on to unforgiveness in your life, it can become a root of bitterness, and it will trouble not the one you resent so much as you yourself. So I say yes. If someone does not apologize and ask forgiveness, yes, we still do need to forgive them for the health and the good of our own souls. Oh boy, could you expound on what it means that my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you put in jail? Boy, everybody wants to go back to that Matthew 18 parable, don't they? That's the end of the parable that Jesus said. And it does sound very harsh and very severe Um, The end of the parable, you know, the the unforgiving servant, the master hears. The master who forgave this servant a vast, unfathomable amount now hears that the servant he forgave has gone out to a fellow servant and he's choking him, saying, pay back what you owe, a very small amount, no mercy. And so the master hears about it in verse 32 of that chapter, summons him and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers jailers until he should pay all that debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think that says it pretty strongly. When we know the debt we've been forgiven by God, and I, for me at least, this is, this is an understanding that continues to grow in life in more fully comprehending how holy God is, how serious my, my sin is, and how great a thing Jesus has done in removing that sin by his death on the cross. The more we recognize that, the more we see that the offenses of others toward us are just so minor and insignificant by comparison. But this is a warning from Jesus. What does it mean? My heavenly Father will do to every one of you. I don't, I can't say I know fully what it means. I don't think it necessarily means you don't forgive somebody like you should. You go to hell. Because frankly in life, sometimes we we don't know if we've fully forgiven someone. I think about the thief on the cross next to Jesus. That man had committed plenty of sin in his life, I'm sure. He was dying because of his thievery. Probably a lot of people had hurt him, a lot of people he hadn't forgiven. But on the cross, on the cross, he looks at Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Did he confess all of his sins? 
No, he didn't have a chance to. He died pretty quickly after saying that to Jesus. But yet I believe Jesus' sacrifice was applied to his life so that his sin was covered, the righteousness of Christ credited to him. He was brought into the family of God. Had he lived, though, and he become part of the Christian church like you and I have had the opportunity to do, he would have grown in his faith. He would have learned the teachings of Jesus about forgiveness. In fact, he would learn the seriousness of forgiving those who wrong us. And the Holy Spirit would have carried him along and brought him along to a place where, where God would have worked in him. So if you read those words and you're afraid that you have not forgiven someone as fully as you should, or you're struggling to forgive someone who's deeply hurt you, doesn't mean that you have lost your salvation and you're consigned to hell. I don't believe it means that, but I do believe it's a severe and serious warning to recognize the immense death that we've been forgiven and having our sins removed and the call to forgive someone. Now, I know people, you know people, we all hear of people who've been hurt more deeply than we could imagine. Someone's hurt them. Someone's hurt their spouse. Someone's hurt their child. And that's, that's incredibly tough, difficult to deal with. We need God to help us in this thing of forgiveness. There's a time to say, God, I can't forgive that person. But you're my Lord, and I want to do what you say. So would you please, by the Holy Spirit, help me to forgive that person? For some people, that's not an immediate thing. That's a long and, and drawn out thing. But the warning is significant. And remember, it's a parable. And we don't take every part of a parable and say, well, in this one, the jail refers to hell. I don't think that's the intent. I think the intent of the parable is to simply recognize the immensity of the debt we've been forgiven, the insignificance of what others do to us by comparison. So we were called to forgive them. And yes, a sober warning. That unforgiveness is a terrible thing to carry around in your heart. Let no root of bitterness springing up cause you trouble. So, yeah. The tenants worked the vineyard, so they were working toward a harvest outcome. Is the rejection of the servants and the, the son rejecting God's will for our own? And be sure, I'm not sure I understand it clearly. The tenants worked the vineyard, so they were working toward a harvest outcome. Okay, remember what the parable means now. The, the owner of the vineyard, the master, we understand to be God. Vineyard throughout Scripture is used to represent his people. So the vineyard was, was God's people. Uh, that was the image Isaiah gave in the Old Testament. Jesus is speaking now to the chief priests and elders, these religious leaders, supposed to be leaders and shepherds and teach of, of, teachers of Israel. That's what they're supposed to be. And uh, the servants who were sent were the prophets, and the Israelites had rejected them just like their ancestors were. They were now going to reject the son, Jesus. So um, they were working toward... They were supposed to be working toward a harvest. That was uh, fruit for the Lord. Is the rejection of the servants and the son rejecting God's will for our own? Um, I'm not exactly sure I understand the question, but um, 
I would say this. The parable calls us to receive and not reject the son. So in that sense, yes, the parable is applied to us as do not be like these religious leaders who rejected the son and rejected the prophets. We, on the other hand, should receive the prophetic writings because Jesus treated them as inspired, authoritative truth, scripture. Remember, remember the Bible's a unified whole. And certainly, rejecting the Son, Jesus, is rejecting God's will for our lives, absolutely. And I, if, I, if I understood it correctly, I would certainly say that uh, rejecting the servants and the Son is rejecting God's will, rejecting His Savior. Jesus is the cornerstone where to build our lives on Him. So, sorry if I didn't fully understand it. Why is the cornerstone placed in Zion? Gosh. I'm not sure I know, but I, I think um, I think in Scripture, uh, Zion um, is a reference to uh, Mount Zion, to the city of God, Jerusalem. I'm thinking of a verse now in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Let me, let me read it to you. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to believers who've come to faith in God through Jesus. And writes, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. So really, there's this heavenly Jerusalem we think of as where we'll be when we die, if we know Jesus, where the saints are now. So in a sense, Jesus became the cornerstone of the spiritual family. If you remember the verses we read from 1 Peter chapter 2 a moment ago, he's the, he's the cornerstone. We're living stones being built upon him, making this spiritual house. And spiritual uh, Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. So I think it all has to do with um, the imagery um, of the temple in the Old Testament and applying that to New Testament, Mount Zion being heaven. don't think I did a very good job answering that, but um, what is thought to be meant by those who fall on this stone and are broken um, to pieces, believers or non-believers? I would say um, non-believers. As with all the, not all, but a few of the parables we've looked at so far, there's this idea of judgment for rejecting Jesus. Um, and yes, this being broken by the cornerstone, this coming under judgment by rejecting the sun, just like the builders rejected the cornerstone, just like the tenants rejected the servants and the sun, those who re reject Jesus do not receive his salvation, his righteousness, the removal of their sins, and therefore will incur uh, judgment. Okay. Uh, in the parable of the tares in the weeds which are gathered and burned, um, understood to be the false teachers and also those who are deceived by the false teachers. That's a really great uh, question. I think that parable is um, back in Matthew chapter 13. And it's interesting because the, um, 
the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and the plants came up and bore grain, and the weeds appeared also. Um, that's a really good question, because other scripture does clearly teach that there are false teachers uh, in the church. Uh, the apostle Paul would later write that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no great thing if his ministers disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. So certainly false teachers are sent into the church. So I do think it's true that there are false teachers, those who are deceived and deceiving others who, who appear uh, in the church. They're behind pulpits. That's certainly true. But I think the, the, the main point of that parable of the wheat in the weeds is that a day is coming when all will be clear and the wheat will be separated from the weeds, that ultimate uh, day of judgment and separation coming. We're about out of time. Uh, when the final judgment comes, do you think we will witness the sorting the good into vessels and the bad being thrown away? I think so. I think so. I think that's what that parable uh, of the weeds and the wheat is all about. All right, can we go ahead and, and uh, pray now? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word, Lord. We pray your Holy Spirit as we continue through this series, as we, we really are moving into a, a new season in the life of our church with opening of the Discipleship Center and a new focus on building followers of Jesus who were sent to reach others. We pray for a powerful and increasingly powerful work of the Holy Spirit in each of us to comprehend, to understand your word, to grasp it, to grow in grace and grow in faith. And Father, I pray for anyone here who needs to forgive someone else and has been unable to do that. Would you please work in them by your spirit today with the grace to do that? And for anyone, Lord, who has not yet received the true vine, the cornerstone, Jesus, would you bring that person today to a whole trusting reliance upon Jesus for salvation, reliance upon what he did on the cross for us? Would you bring them into your family following Jesus as Savior and Lord? And we pray in your great name. Amen.